Father, here in the quiet this morning, we approach Your throne of grace. And we approach with great boldness, Father, because of what Christ did. And because of who Jesus is. And because of His blood that covers and cleanses and purifies and redeems. And we thank You for that great sacrifice. Father, before I go any further, I pray for any who might be among us this morning. Any time this morning, Lord, who hasn't given their life to You. Doesn't know You. Perhaps the Father hasn't gone into even the waters of baptism to express that faith. And I pray, Father, today would be a changing day. And that Your Word would get into the hearts of all listeners and affect us wherever we are to draw closer to where You are. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And at this turn of the year, by our calendar, Father, we thank You that we have Jesus always and ever before us. Teach us, Holy Spirit, as is your good pleasure in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We will pick up right where we left off on Christmas Eve, verse 21 of Luke, chapter 2. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, or Shimon. And this man was was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, an economist YouGov poll tells us that 54% of Americans thought that 2013 was a bad year. Another 15% beyond that called it a very bad year. So put that all together and over two-thirds of Americans did not like 2013. 
How many are ready to plunge into the new year? <laughs> How many are ready just to go back for a long winter's nap? I think maybe that's where most of us are at. Some might say if 2013 was a person, I'd sue for damages. <laughs> the optimist stays up until midnight on New Year's Eve to welcome in the new year. The pessimist stays up all night long to make sure the old year has gone away. <laughs> of course, many make New Year's resolutions this time of year. Those thoughts begin to come up. We see it at least in the newspapers. You know what a New Year's resolution is? A New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. (laughs) It's what I call the New Year's Eve memory dump. There is an interesting uh, characteristic in human beings, and that is the ability, the capacity to hope. And so people will come up to New Year's Eve with great excitement and expectation to party, to enjoy, to celebrate the end of one year, the beginning of the next, and then to head into the next year with some amount of hope that maybe this next year will be better. Forget all that's happened and look forward to what's coming. Maybe this year will be better. Well, I hate to throw cold water on it, but what makes you think this year will be any better than last year? Why should it change? What's the difference? Just because we cross that midnight line, just because the ball drops in New York City, just because now it's New Year's Day, suddenly it's all supposed to be better? (laughs) What if it's worse? What if 2014 is the year America implodes? What if it's the year you lose your job? What if it's the year that your life falls apart? What if all bad things happen in 2014... Rick, you're bringing me down. Look, I'm, I'm personally not all gloom and doom. In fact, I think looking back at 2013, anybody saved by Jesus in that year would call it a good year. Mm-hmm. And anybody saved in this coming year, should the Lord tarry and allow us the time, will call 2014 a good year. Personally, my hope and my prayer is that 2014 is the year of the Lord. That is the year that Jesus comes. Actually, let me back that up. I hope He comes before 2014. But should He wait through the end of this year, I hope this coming year is the year that Jesus returns. And that's where hope comes from. That's how you can look forward to the next day and the day after that. Maybe that's why Paul's resolve rings so true in the heart of a follower of Jesus. Philippians 3.13, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now someone might say, well that's fantastic, but didn't he write that 2,000 years ago? And didn't Paul die having been beheaded? So he's forgetting what lies behind but looking forward and yet he died and, and things continue on just as they always have. Don't you Christians get disappointed waiting year after year after year for Jesus to come? I wonder if Chuck Smith is disappointed right now. Those of you who know Chuck Smith passed away recently. The founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. Chuck Smith waited his whole life expecting every single day for the rapture to come and to go home and be with Jesus. Well, right now, I can guarantee you, he is not disappointed. How can Paul or anyone forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead? And the secret is very very simply this. You know Jesus is worth the wait. Should we have another decade on this planet? Jesus is worth the wait. 
Another 20 years. Jesus is worth the wait. And should He come tomorrow, me having lived these 49 years of my life, Jesus is worth the wait. This morning, I just want to simply deal with some attitudes. And I would call them attitudes of awaiting. Attitudes of awaiting the coming of the Lord. Attitudes that I believe are are inherent in the passage before us and I think can encourage us in our waiting for our expectation of the coming of Jesus. Should He come quickly or should He tarry? Attitudes of awaiting the Lord. We begin looking... Four characters, four personas, aside from Jesus, in the story before us, we begin with Joseph and Mary, and what I would call, number one, if you're taking notes, the outlook of observation. The outlook of observation. Verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's this all about? Leviticus chapter 12, and you can go back and study that on your own time, tells a couple of things to us. The law of the Lord. God says, every firstborn male is mine. That is, every firstborn male among humans, among male uh, among babies, is mine. And every firstborn male among animals is mine. When it comes to animals, they need to be sacrificed. When it comes to male children, they need to have a sacrifice made for them, a lamb was typically what was required. Why does he say a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? Well, we understand several things here in the passage. First of all, the story before us takes place 40 days after Jesus' birth. Not 8 days, 40 days. It was 8 days to a circumcision, but we're told when the days for their purification were completed, well, there were another 33 days added on to that or 32 days to the 8 days added on so 40 days after the child was born mother and child could then come for presentation in the temple we know that Mary and Joseph traveled with the infant Jesus after 40 days 6 miles from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem this scene takes place there at the temple in Jerusalem We know they didn't offer a lamb, though that was required by the law. The law had a caveat. If you can't afford a lamb, that is for those who are impoverished, two turtle doves or two pigeons would be allowed instead. I think that's amazing. Because what that tells us is that Mary herself could not afford a lamb. She had given birth to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but she couldn't afford a lamb herself. Isn't that just like all of us? I can't afford a lamb. I can't bring a lamb. There's nothing I can do to afford my purification. And so the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was offered for us. God brought the Lamb that we could not afford. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. By the way, notice the word in verse 22, There. 
It says, when the days were completed for their purification. The there does not apply to Joseph and Mary. The there, there, applies to Mary and Jesus. The days for their purification. Now I get Mary needing to be purified, but Jesus? Wasn't He pure? Why would He have to go through those days of purification? Was it possible that the infant child Jesus was impure? No. However, He could have been excused from this purification law. He could have been excused from His baptism. He didn't even need to be baptized. He could have been excused from the cross. But understand something here. In all three situations, the rite of purification at His birth, His baptism, and in the cross, Jesus wholly identified and ultimately took the place of impure sinners. He didn't have to do it. But He did it to take our place. He did it to fulfill the law, to make all things right. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And here's what I want you to get. And this is the outlook of observation. Jesus, through it all, kept the law in Himself. He didn't miss a trick. And in fact, Joseph and Mary, when Jesus was a child, kept the law. They observed the law. They maintained the law. They kept God's law before them, ever before them. And Jesus said in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, applied by the Hebrew writer in chapter 10, verse 7, I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus was the perfect keeper of the law. Even in the purification rite of His birth, the law was kept. The law was never lacking in the life of Jesus. He said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so even in his infancy, Joseph and Mary nurtured Jesus by the book. They kept their eye on the Word. The outlook of observation. Listen, this is a great attitude of waiting for Jesus. One who maintains the outlook of observation. That is, we continue to observe the law. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking going, about going back, about being a Judaizer. I'm not saying we need to do all the things prescribed in the law perfectly. I'm saying that in this another year, as we await the coming of Christ, we determine to observe and keep all His commands. That we keep the law ever before us. That we observe the Word of God. And we've been going at this for a decade now. We're not going to stop. Until Jesus comes, this fellowship is going to be in the Word. And I would encourage you, whether you are here or God takes you elsewhere on the planet, you remain in the Word of God. You observe the Word of God. You keep the Word. How do you wait for the coming of Jesus? You do so observing the Word. Ever before you. How do we know Jesus wasn't a Palestinian? We know that by observing the Word. How do we keep from getting off on all sorts of bizarre tangents and tracks as so many have across history? We keep the Word. We observe the Word of Christ. 
And this is reflected in the poignancy of the song we sang today, the words written by David, Psalm 119, 54, Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember Your name in the night and keep Your law. Now, I don't always keep the law. It's sometimes hard to sing those words because I think, boy, I'm, I'm not great at this. I'm singing I keep Your law, but I don't always keep Your law. The point is this. I sing the statutes. I chorus the commands. I lift up the law. I desire to keep the law in the name of Christ. Now, please hear me on this because I used to have a problem with this whole law thing. I used to look at the law as legalistic. Keeping of the law. In fact, I used to believe that the Old Testament was abolished, done away with. Jesus said, no, it wasn't. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. In and of Himself, He kept the law. But I would tell myself as a young Christian, I don't need the law. I want to abandon the law. I have freedom in Christ Jesus, which I did, but I didn't want to be a Pharisee. And I think I took it to the extreme that it was really more of an excuse for rebellion. Well, I know the law says that, but I'm not under the law. I know God prescribed that for the Jewish people, but I'm not under that. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. I may have told you all before, Cheryl and I had some friends in college who when they got married, thought that marriage was a prescription for absolute freedom. And so they began drinking heavily and smoking and getting into all kinds of very bizarre things, physically speaking, because they were married now. So they could do these things. That was just stupid. And some people come to Christ and they say, I have freedom in Christ. There's no more law. There's no more prescription. There's no more worry. I can do whatever I want and I can be accepting of any and everything because, you know, whatever. I have grace now. And I hear David say, Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. As long as I'm a pilgrim on this earth, the most important word I can read and keep is God's word. The most important direction that I can live by is right here. Every word of it is perfect. Not talking about staunch, judgmental, uncaring religion. That's not the law. Jesus came along and fulfilled the law perfectly and yet was the the excellent example of grace, right? The Pharisees kept the law legalistically and they were the example of judgment and religion. Jesus kept the law and did so in beautiful grace. You see, when the heart is right, the law is a beautiful thing. When the heart is right before God, the law is actually a wonderful teacher, a wonderful instructor, a wonderful guide in the house of our pilgrimage. Galatians 3.23, Paul said, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. And that's absolutely true. We're not under the tutor. But how many of you have had a teacher that you respected and admired over the years that you learned from until you came out of their class and then you began to walk alongside them? Did you throw them out as a friend? Did you reject them as someone who perhaps might have wisdom from time to time? Of course not. If you respected the teacher, then you continued to walk with the teacher, recognizing you weren't under their authority. But in your freedom... 
you could walk alongside them. That's a good way to think of the law. I'm free in Christ, but there's some remarkable wisdom here. Wisdom that is from above. So we don't toss the law, we keep it by faith. We accept the commands of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in so doing, we observe the law. Well, what are the commandments of Christ? There are just two. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to observe the law. Doing what was right in the law. And then something else happens. Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Shimon's name, Simon, Simeon, means hearkening. One who hears. According to tradition, Shimon was 106 years old. So he was up there in years. He was waiting, looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, in the noisy din and the unrest of Judea in those days, it said there was a group of people whose lifestyles may even have drawn all the way back to the time of David or sometime thereafter. A group who were known by a specific name. They were called the quiet of the land. The quiet of the land. This name was drawn from Psalm 35.20. They do not speak peace. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. And there are those who believe that Shimon was one of these. One of the quiet of the land. He wasn't one of those who was fighting back. He wasn't a political activist. He wasn't a zealous insurgent. He was just a righteous, devout listener, as his name, hearkening to the Lord and waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's the consolation of Israel? Well, the question is not what, but who. Because the consolation of Israel does speak of Messiah. It speaks literally of the Christ. Back in Isaiah chapter 40, the book takes a turn not to Deutero-Isaiah, not to Second Isaiah. It's still Isaiah writing. It's still Isaiah the prophet. But in chapter 40, it begins through 66, the rest of the book. It begins what's called the book of Consolation. And it begins with Isaiah saying these words, spoke through him by the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Those are the words of John the Baptist, right? Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord, the consolation of Israel, is Jesus the Christ. So, back to the question. How do you keep waiting for Messiah without becoming discouraged or disillusioned or dismayed? Well, there's the outlook of observation. You keep His Word. But secondly, there's the conviction of consolation. 
how is this Shimon 106 years old if that was his age? But how is he an old man still waiting for the consolation of Israel? Still looking forward to that day? Still hopeful? How is this man in that place? The conviction of consolation. You see, Shimon knew that he was going to see Israel's Messiah before he died. Well, how do you know that? Read on. He was looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Luke points to the Spirit three times here. As if Luke was saying, I want to be sure you understand how Simeon knew what he knew. I want to be sure that you're clear about this conviction, where it came from. He wasn't just hoping beyond hope. He hadn't just done a New Year's Eve memory dump thinking, maybe this year it'll get better. No, Shimon was moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit spoke. And Shimon hearkened. And then the Spirit led him to the temple on that very day, the conviction of consolation gang. It is a Spirit-given confidence. It's how we know. And by the way, the opening chapter of Isaiah's book of consolations ends with these familiar words, Isaiah 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's what happens when you wait for the Lord. You don't need that long winter's nap. You're up and running on the first day of the new year because this may be the time. I am waiting on the Lord and I am gaining new strength every day. That's a heart that is waiting, truly waiting for the coming of the Lord. Do you have the conviction of consolation? Are you convicted, as Shimon was, of the coming of Christ? Looking forward to His imminent and immediate return. Do you have the certainty of that comfort? Paul says a great little trio of verses here. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Second, Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Number three, 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Do you get it? The Holy Spirit is the one who seals that conviction who brings that certainty of consolation. Shimon had it by the Spirit. You have it if the Spirit dwells in you. If you walk by the Spirit of God, you know Jesus is coming. No question. And if you're uncertain, if you're sitting back, if you're hanging back, if you're going, I just don't... I don't know. I'm not sure I believe, really, that Christ is returning the way the Bible says, then I would question whether or not you're listening to the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit seals this truth to you. The Holy Spirit confirms it. And when you have that pledge, when you have that seal, that confirmation by the Spirit of God, then waiting for the consolation of Israel is no burden. A longing? Yes. 
Absolutely. A hungering, of course, but never, never a discouragement. Look at verse 29. So Shimon takes the child, takes Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Note that, all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now stop right there. Check that out. Shimon declared in one sentence the two-pronged plan of God. That there are two plans paralleling each other right now, both in play, that God is working out in this world a light for the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. A light for the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. This is amazing, especially because it comes from an old codger in Judea. It comes from an old Jew who is bent on the truth of the consolation of Israel who is bent on waiting for and looking for Israel's Messiah. But Shimon must be well versed in the book of Isaiah. Shimon must have a handle on the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures that declare this light would be a light for the world. Would be far more than simply the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel, yes, but a light of revelation for the Gentiles. The glory of Israel, gang, it is still in play. It will yet be realized. But the promise to the Gentiles is number three in our notes and a third way that we await the coming, the realization of revelation. The realization of revelation. Revelation. What does that mean really? It means we don't need three secrets to success in the new year. And if you came to the bridge this morning hoping for a message like that, you came to the wrong place. It means we don't need four habits to healthy living. It means we need the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all we need. We were sitting at dinner last night. We took uh, Hannah and Josiah out and having a nice meal together. And, and there was a woman and an older couple that were sitting at a table just down from us. And the moment we sat down... For one thing, the the woman was so loud talking about her depression and her medication and her therapy. I kid you not. I'm like, don't you want to do this perhaps in private? And about how she has been dealing with her depression and and how really what what, what has has come about in her life is, is understanding her ego better. And, and the influence of the id and, of course, the superego. And, uh, and through analysis, how she is becoming more healthy in these things. And the language went on and on. I studied this stuff back in, in grad school, gang. And walked away from it. Because it was such tripe. It was so bogus. And I wanted so desperately. They were so into the whole... I mean, it was Freudian. I mean, it was old school Freud stuff. That they were talking there. And just talking about how <laughs> life's going to be better this year. <laughs> the ego and the id. And I'm in <laughs> And all I wanted to do was lean over and go, Do y'all know Jesus? <laughs> because I'll tell you, you don't need more therapy. You need Jesus Christ. Amen. John Corson said, God didn't give us a manual. He gave us Emmanuel. Yes. That's beautiful. And that is so spot on. He didn't give us a manual for living. 
Here's what to do when you're depressed. Here's what to do when you're having struggles. Here's what to do when you're stressed out. Here's what to do when you have anxiety. No, that's not what He gave us. He gave us Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. And by the way, this book, this manual, does one thing for us. It points us to Him. Which is why in the observation of the Word, we keep looking for Jesus. Because the more we're in the Word, the more we want to see Jesus. Because that's what the Word does. God gave us Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, your ego just gets big. Because all your focus is on the self. What a waste. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, begins by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is. That's why I correct people from time to time when they say, oh, I really want to study Revelations. Well, I say, well, that's great. You can study Revelations or you can study the Revelation. Singular. It's one Revelation game. It's not a multiplicity of Revelations. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. And He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is He who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Gang, the revelation is Christ Jesus. And the revelation is coming. And coming quickly. And the revelation is itself revealing. And this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Listen to what Shimon continued to say. It says his father and mother, Jesus' father and mother, uh, Jesus' stepfather and earthly mother, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and for a sword that will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What does the revelation of Christ do? He reveals the thoughts of your heart. When Christ becomes revealed in you, when you accept the revelation of who Jesus is, He begins then to reveal the real thoughts of your heart. Sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes, though His grace washes over me, what washes off, what I see coming off of me, is not pretty. It's ugly, filthy stuff. Reveals the thoughts of the heart. There ain't no hiding what's really going on in here when you're walking with the Lord. You can hide all you want when you're not. And I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you come to church hiding your your garbage, then you've missed the point. Jesus reveals. Jesus shines a light into those dark places, those hidden places of our lives, and says, let's clean it up. Let's get it pure. Let me go to work. He reveals the very thoughts of the heart, the things that no one else knows but you. Now He knows and wants to reveal, wants to get into the light. That's why James wrote, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Note that. James puts healing and confession together because the one impacts the other. Unconfessed secret sin works like disease in my life, in your life. If you're hiding in something, if you think you can kind of sweep it under the carpet and keep it there and no one really needs to know about the dark things in your life, guess what? Think again because Jesus reveals those things. 
reveals the thoughts of the heart. That's why John said in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about a time perhaps in your life where you got busted for something. And it was something you were hiding for a long period of time. Weren't you kind of glad you got busted? Wasn't there just an immediate freedom? Yeah, and i got to pay for what I did, but uh, at least I don't have to hide this anymore. Why is it that criminals will give themselves up? Because the burden of carrying that stuff can be so heavy. And Jesus says, come on, let's reveal what's going on. Let me see what's in here. Open it up. Get free of that stuff. The revelation of Christ reveals the thoughts of the heart. The revelation of Christ is a sword that pierces the soul. Shimon said, Mary, your soul is going to get cut. You're going to feel the pangs of the piercing of the sword. The mothering of Jesus alone would be a heart-wrenching affair culminating in watching His crucifixion. A painful time was ahead for Mary. But I'll tell you, it's not just Mary. If you receive the revelation of Jesus in your life, He becomes in you a sword that pierces. And He will incisively cut. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing, as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Well, why is that? Why does the sword have to be something that pierces us? Why the pain of the piercing? Because Shimon also says, the revelation of Christ, listen to this, is a sign to be opposed. The very revelation of Jesus. What does that mean? It means He reveals rebellion. Coming to know Christ. Even the name of Christ spoken. Why do people want to rip Christ out of Christmas? Because the name of Christ reveals rebellion. The name of Christ brings to light the very attitudes of the heart that drive so much of the world in which we live. He says in verse 34, this will be appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. A sign to be opposed. Note this. The Greek word for fall there, he's appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Interesting, the Greek word is ptosis. Ptosis means downfall. Because people are opposed to obedience, opposed to God. And so Jesus would, in the revelation of Christ, be the downfall of many in Israel. But He will also be, I love this, the rise of of many in Israel. And that word rise in the Greek is anastasis. Sound familiar? Resurrection. It is the word for resurrection. What does that mean? It means your response, my response to the revelation of Jesus will determine either our downfall or our resurrection eternally. You respond and accept Jesus, the revelation of Christ, and you can be saved for all eternity. Your resurrection. You reject, you oppose... The revelation of Jesus? And that becomes your downfall eternally. One more personality enters the moment. 
Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And by the way, that's one indication to us that though the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed, people of the northern kingdom were not lost. The ten tribes were not lost. We're down there in Judea, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin were the southern kingdom. But now we have Anna of the tribe of Asher, part of the northern kingdom. Others are mentioned in Scripture of the northern kingdom as well. So I dispel the whole notion of the lost tribes of Israel. If you've done any study or heard about that, uh, we could have a conversation about that, but I believe it's bogus. God knows where His people are. Well, she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple. This woman loved church. Serving night and day with fastings and prayers... And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Do you think Anna or Shimon were having a good year? Do you think for them the year had been glorious? Or do you think for them after the turn of the year, and this perhaps was right around the time or just after the time of Rosh Hashanah for the Jews... Sometime in the fall, we think. Do you think now that it was in a new year, they were thinking, oh, we're looking forward to a better year because last year was so bad? Honestly, in this moment, do you think it really even mattered what was going to happen in this life? Shimon was free. He had seen the consolation of Israel. He's released. He even used that word. Behold, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. I can die happy now! Because I have seen the consolation of Israel in this infant child, Jesus. So take me home, Lord. And here comes Anna. And she is just excited in this glorious moment. How does 84-year-old Anna or 106-year-old Shimon go one more day without despairing? Number four in your notes, the encouragement of expectation. Both of these old saints had the encouragement of expectation. They spent their lives expecting the consolation of Israel, expecting the coming of Jesus. That's how they lived. That's how Paul lived. That's how we as followers of Jesus are called to live, with the encouragement of expectation. I think I've read this verse probably about five or six hundred times. Let's make it 601. Titus 2 verse 11. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Anna, she knew Jesus when she saw Him. I don't know if she heard Shimon praising and and prophesying over the child. I don't know if she heard that. But Anna, a prophetess herself, when she saw this infant, knew, here's Jesus. Here's Messiah. And from that point forward, Anna's message changed. She was no longer one waiting for. Now, note what it says. She continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She continued now to speak of Him. Her message has now become a man. Her prophecy, so to speak, has now become personified. Now it's no longer prophecy about what's going to come. It's talking about who has come. Jesus is here. Messiah is among us. And this became Anna's message for the rest of her life. He's here. 
He is among us. Her message was Jesus. Not Emmanuel, but Emmanuel. And Anna didn't waste her breath on the hard-hearted. Note that. It says that she continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Not to those who were rebelling against it, rejecting it, pushing it aside, saying, I don't want it. No, she took her message to anyone who wanted to hear it. To all those who longed for a better year, a better life. Observation. Let us observe every word of God. Consolation. Let us be assured our comfort is coming. Revelation. Let's walk with Jesus. And finally, expectation. This year, as in all others, let us keep looking forward for our redemption draws near. Amen? Amen. I don't know what Jesus is going to do in 2014. I don't have that prophetic word. I can't tell you. I don't know if your life's going to be better. I don't know if He's going to wait. I don't know if we're even going to make it to 2014. But I know this. And I can declare this to you with all assurance. Enjoy this morning. Jesus is worth the wait. Let's pray together. Lord, your Apostle Paul wrote in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Lord Jesus, we love Your appearing. We love how You appeared to us by revelation in our hearts the moment we believed. And we love that You are going to appear again, first in the sky to call Your people home. And second, coming in the clouds of great glory to return to this earth. As Your Word declares, we love Your appearing. Lord, among us there may be those who have never considered loving You in such a way. And if that's You this morning while we pray, I invite You to begin to love the appearing of Jesus this morning. And yes, I'm talking about becoming a Christian, giving your life to Him. If you want to give Jesus your life today, I invite you to pray with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I ask You to appear to me now. I pray that You will come into my heart and begin to speak Your truth into me. I pray, Father, for salvation that I know now only comes by Jesus. I believe that You died for me on the cross and took my place, making me pure, though I would be impure. I believe that You resurrected from the dead. And that in Your resurrection, there is the promise of the rising, of the resurrecting of all those who believe in You. I believe in You. I believe You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I accept and receive You today as my Lord and as my Savior. Father, for all those among us now who are believers in You, who are followers of Jesus, who are looking for the consolation of Israel and the revelation to all the Gentiles, Lord Jesus, we pray Your encouragement. We pray Your strength. We ask for Your wisdom. And we seek, Father, for perseverance for every moment of every day until You come. 
Ready our hearts for that glorious day. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.